Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, the fitness industry is one of the most lucrative worldwide with revenue of $87 billion, about $30 billion right here in the United States, and growing at a rate of 8.7% per year. That's some good growth. As with everything else, they've had to accommodate to meet the new demands of their customers and implement new business models. Ben Midsley is the CEO of Crunch Franchise for Crunch Fitness, a 27-year industry veteran and the only one to serve as the CEO and president of two of the largest and fastest growing full-sized, high-value, low-priced brands. Ben is credited with driving the fastest launch of any full-size franchise in the history of the fitness industry. Ben, welcome back to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Absolutely. And I think the last time I talked to you was well before COVID hit, but like everyone else, the fitness industry has been impacted by COVID. What's it like to be opening up gyms during this time? Yeah, it's, well, it's it's different and it's not different. I mean, when COVID hit, I mean, all of us were, were sort of sitting on pins and needles. And then you see that, you know, gyms were one of the groups that were very first targeted, right? Restaurants, yeah. bars, and gyms. So uh, we were all kind of surprised to, to hear that. So, uh, you know, that we've never been faced with that before. So we had to get past that one hurdle before we could even think about opening new clubs again, right? So the, the whole process of, of uh, going through this was first, you know, going through the shutdown process, communicating with all your members, because we have, you know, well over a million, almost 2 million members of the network, communicating with them how that's going to work and your, your billing practices. And then you had to create your readiness plan for the clubs. We came up with over a 40-page readiness plan that we had to use uh, just to get everybody to understand how to, to keep your clubs operating in this time period when we could reopen. Then you had the scramble for cleaning supplies and signage, which is, you know, uh, perfect for your previous guests, you know, how to direct people around the clubs and all the different instructions about cleaning and um, social distancing or what have you. And, um, you know, the air filtration systems, we were going through all these different things based on the information we were getting at the time to try to build the proper protocol so we would be fine to reopen and could do it in a safe manner because you know we're the health and fitness industry so the top priority is we're here to help members improve their health um so if you can't operate safely then that you're not really supporting that so that was our first priority getting past that getting reopened which happened in a lot of different stages we're in about almost 40 different states right now in six different countries so we had different protocols in place for each state different timelines different capacity management different regulations so once we got through that uh we got a bit of a rhythm and the operators now are, are almost back to looking at the business as normal beyond the uncertainty of are they going to get closed down again? How long are the restrictions going to last? How much is it going to affect their revenue? Uh, but, you know, the tension uh, is there that wasn't there before. But at the same time, there's a lot of optimism, right? There, we're, we're one of the companies that is going to be sitting in a good place at the end of this, right? Unfortunately, in our industry, there's going to be somewhere between 10 or 15 or 20% of the uh, industry providers are going to close. 
So why just, why are you saying that you're going to be in a good shape compared to the others? Why? What what's what have you done that's different? Well, than- first, this has been tremendously hard on mom and pops, right? Yeah. You've got to fight with your landlord if you don't own your site. A lot of times, health clubs are large, they're so 50,000 square feet. So that's yeah. a big expense each month that you have to manage. And then sometimes the the landlords are forgiving to a degree. Sometimes they're very challenging to work with. And then they of course have their own bills that they have to pay with the banks and and uh, you know work with their 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 uh, debt structure and their their arrangements. So uh, so a lot of unfortunately the mom and pops are going to close. A lot of the larger facilities, the large corporately owned, not franchised operators that have to settle all that debt themselves have had to file bankruptcy and reduce the size of their business. So because of this, the companies that stay in place, uh, there's just going to be more market share when you come out the other side, right? right. You, you of course have to go through the period of consumers uh, regaining confidence in going out and just patronizing businesses. And I'd say right now the country is still probably split down the middle of those who want to, you know, stay in as much as possible, and others who are just dying to get out. But on the other end of it, uh, we feel like we're going to be in a pretty good place to uh, to move move forward. And just for example, we just opened a club yesterday in Odessa, Texas, and on their first day they pre-sold 2,300 memberships. Wow. Which is which is as much well, as a lot of clubs sell in a year. Yeah, Texas likes to do everything big. They do. Yeah, they do. They do. I know that we've got a big, we've got a good group, uh, our Lone Star Council and uh, for the C-Suite Network. Hey, um, Ben, you, you've lobbied Congress for federal relief legislation for the industry, but the industry has been excluded from the most recent COVID uh, relief bill. Is there anything else being done at that level to help the industry? Yeah, well, the the fitness clubs did qualify for the first round of PPP loans, right? Yeah. If you could get your application in and then get through the process, which was challenging, as you know. Uh, so we had a lot of franchisees that did that. Um, from that standpoint, uh, we obviously went back aggressively, not just as individual operators, but the industry as a whole, our industry trade association. We had a lot of states that formed fitness alliances. Uh, a lot of folks reached out uh, personally to their congressional representatives, my Myself included to any uh, relationships that you had. Uh, we uh, obviously had lobbyists going in a lot of different areas of the industry. So we didn't get specifically named in this new release bill, but when you read through it, you can still, our operators can still reapply, right, mm-hmm. for additional uh, relief within the PPP structure. So they're obviously going to be doing that right now. They're waiting for the applications to come out. So, you know, we'll take advantage of it. It's not what we had hoped for, but, um, you know, anything's going to help these. these these, these uh, operators right now. Yeah, but as Catherine Munchen mentioned in an earlier interview, you know, this, she's the, the head of the IFA, at least the, the chairman of the IFA, mentioned that it had to be at least 25% reduction in revenue. Are you guys seeing those kinds of reductions across the board or how, how are you holding up? Well, what's what's interesting is some of the operators are just doing phenomenally well, right? They're in some cases breaking records, uh, but they're more so in the states that are that have less restrictions, right? If you're in a state that's just restricted your your opening ability or your capacity to the point that it's not as exciting for the member to go there, they're not going to get that community-based experience. Then yes, you're going to certainly you know experience that revenue drop, and then you'll qualify. So uh, it really depends where you are in the country. 
you know, right now on a, a year over year basis, the sales themselves are higher than what they were in the same period a year ago, which is great in itself, but cancellations are also up. So right now, a lot of the clubs are just sort of breaking even from that standpoint. And um, they're recovering in different levels in different parts of the country for uh, different lines, such as personal training, which is a real, you know, revenue driver in the clubs, uh, depending on really what the, the feeling is in the communities around the club. Yeah, well, that's a saving grace, personal trainers. It's also good for them. And I think a lot of people have been getting a little bit healthier and, and all the way around. C-Suite Radio. You know, one of the things that's interesting for me is you have a lot of employees that are out there in the franchise organizations themselves, and you have some company owned, I believe, as well. Mm -hmm. How do you guys communicate? How do you help with the communication to the employees and, and hold those employees? Well, being a franchise network, obviously, we, we communicate primarily with the ownerships and the management levels. And then the managers of those facilities will communicate then down to the employees at those levels. So we, we try and have as a robust, a service platform as we can. Uh, we've got a very robust internet platform, very robust learning platform. Obviously we've employed a lot of uh, video conferencing, you know, like we're doing right now on a very regular basis. We are still traveling to the clubs where it is appropriate. And then you have to respect all the different quarantine laws between the different States. So we're, we're supporting the clubs as much as we possibly can. Uh, the franchisees are doing a great job. You know, we have uh, over 1,200 franchises sold, but we only have about a hundred give or take franchise partners. So it's reasonably limited in terms of our, uh, the amount of people we have to communicate with so we can do it effectively and efficiently. And then, you know, they bring that communication down to the, the club level employees. You know, a lot of people worried about contact and obviously in a gym, you'd have a lot more contact, you know, at least with the, the, the machines, the equipment, what are you guys doing to what steps are being in, implemented or the standard practices for crunch franchisees right now? Yeah. Well, we have, like I mentioned, we have a 40 page readiness guideline. Uh, we have obviously enhanced all cleaning aspects of the club uh, to meet CDC guidelines, increase sanitation stations. We've closed down equipment that's too close together, you know, to make sure there's social distancing. We have directional signage. We have temperature checks for employees and members when you come into the clubs. Um, uh, an app, touchless check-ins to get into the club. So anything that you could think that would be required or above and beyond that we've done in the clubs just to overcome the stigma of, you know, you're, you're exercising, you're breathing harder, right? So, right. so generally we understand that, but what's been good finally is that a lot of States have come out and shown that there is no evidence to show that the uh, infections are coming from uh, the clubs. The most recent state was New York, which is a really large health club market. 0.06% of COVID, related infections were tied back to health clubs. San Diego County, same thing. State of Louisiana, same thing. The only activities that were less uh, of an infection rate were outdoor activities, boating, camping, you know, outdoor recreation. So that was a relief for us. And it helped us to get to the point that we're now allowed to stay open, though we still are facing restrictions. Yeah. What about some, what, what steps are you doing right now? Because some of these practices have been, are going to be really good moving forward, regardless in a post COVID kind of world, but what steps are being in, implemented to foster industry growth for franchisees? Well, I think if you talk about the industry as a whole, I'll just be honest, I'll say the industry is, is not at that point yet, right? The industry is still trying to manage how many people are going to close. 
Yeah. Right. We have an industry trade association, which is the International Health Racket and Sports Club Association, similar to the IFA for franchising, right? But the fitness club. But so. it's not just but it's not just franchises. It's also the mom and pop operations too. Right? Oh, absolutely. But I mean they I mean, represent that's you know, the biggest piece of that that's gonna yeah. really face the problems. Yeah, that's our governing body, give or take, or our trade association for, I shouldn't say governing body, for roughly 30,000 health clubs in the U.S. So, you know, they're doing everything possible to make sure, first and foremost, that, that gyms are deemed as an essential business, right? It's well known. The WHO just came out and said it. The Chicago Medical Association or societies lobbying for it is that the healthier you are, the better you have uh, an immune defense, right? Not just to COVID, but to anything, right? So if you're taking away, you know, the, the resource for 60 million Americans to go try to stay healthy, provided they feel comfortable in that environment, it's not the best time to take away resources for folks to try to keep their immune system up, right? And stay healthy. So, you know, we're right now as an industry, just trying to get to level set. And then at that point, it's going to be about fostering growth. And then you're obviously going to see some, some favorable trends on the real estate side, you know, for us, which is uh, our largest expense in most cases uh, for all health clubs and then payroll. So that's going to be one thing that's going to be beneficial to help lead us out of this. And there's certainly a broader availability of real estate, not just because of COVID, but because of the transition to online retailing. So we're going to be getting more opportunities to have a spaces and better, uh, better, um, uh, you know, malls or strips or what have you to, uh, to get the club's place, better traffic. Yeah. I was going to ask you about real estate. I would imagine there's going to be some good buys coming up. They're coming up left and right. I mean, we're getting opportunities for sites that before had certainly turned us down or were impossible to get into. Um, but, you know, previous to this, you know, as sad as the statistic is, as you know, you know, you were losing what seven to 9,000 brick and mortar retail locations a year, just because of the Amazons and some of the other online mm -hmm. retailers and then add to that, the challenges of mandatory shutdowns, right? Because this isn't like the last recession. This is, this is, you have to shut down. This isn't because the economy is not going well, like 2007, 2008. So uh, that's just going to keep the closures happening in brick and mortar. And then they're going to need to transition the usage for those centers, which a lot of people are doing in traditional malls and other things to, to more of a mixed use to drive more consumers back to those sites. So I mentioned in the intro that your history with uh, across the industry, which has been stellar, you spearheaded the fastest launch of any full-size franchise in the history of the franchise industry. How did you accomplish that? Well, uh, you know, obviously it's not just me, right? And I, I appreciate that, that, you know, that endorsement there. Um, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm the guy, the head of the franchise, but the, the whole reason this has worked is because we've got a lot of tremendous people around it, both underneath me and, you know, and above me and at the board level and at the peer level. Uh, a lot of us have worked together in this company for 20 years, right? When we decided to create the franchise, I was previously the president over at Planet Fitness and I left there and, and we started this concept here. And what we decided to do is take what was already an established business model, which is low price fitness in the industry, and then create more value you for that product for the consumer. So that's the logical business proposition, right? If somebody's already doing A for X amount of dollars and you can do B with more services for the same price, you probably have a pretty good chance of getting people to come over and take advantage of your service. So we did that and the model was well received. And what was kind of funny in the beginning is our sales pitch to franchisees was, hey, Crunch just came out of bankruptcy and we don't have any clubs, but would you like to become a franchisee? <laughs> okay. Right. So that that's what we're working with. And people yeah. came on because they liked the way 
We were communicating with them. Yeah, right? we were upfront and honest, transparent, transparent. Yeah, we're a scrappy startup. We're partnering, and we've tried to maintain that partnering feel with our franchisees all the way to this point. And our model has been stay small to grow large. That's why we tr- we try to keep less franchisees that own more clubs because it allows us to manage the relationships on a much more intimate and uh, genuine level. So I know you work out of New Hampshire and you live in Maine. Okay. They're kind of, I compare them a little bit. They got trees as opposed to South lots Dakota. Of trees. Yeah, yeah. Lots of trees, but, but it's kind of like you guys have been practicing social distancing since statehood, right? South Dakota is like that. That's true. Uh, yeah. So but I say, I see you in the office. So what, what things have you done uh, to kind of adapt to this new way of working? Well, that's that's interesting, right? But you hit the nail on the head, right? In in Maine, for example, and New Hampshire, for that matter, you don't honestly run into that many people all the time, right? You're just naturally spread out. That's why Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont—they're they're almost the three lowest uh, infection rates in the country, right? Uh, not that these states have done anything different from a restriction standpoint than other states. It's just you're not constantly bumping into people. Uh, personally, you know, it didn't really affect my life beyond the professional side, right? The kids are doing remote learning and hybrid learning, but um, so we spend a lot of focus on them, making sure they kind of stay in their bubble and they're busy and we're doing outdoor activities or whatever it is to keep them uplifted because they don't get to see their friends as much. And that's something so many other parents are experiencing right now. So you got to focus on the kids. Professionally, uh, look, we, we shut the offices down for months, right? Yeah. Uh, so we got back into the office. We're well spread out. You're, you're, you're masking in and masking out and all that. So that's certainly a change. But um, if you compare it to our colleagues in New York or our colleagues in California, it's it's a different world here. Yeah. Are, are some of the employees, were they nervous about that coming back and starting to work in the office? Were they eager to get back? I mean, what was kind of the feeling? Uh, I mean, look, I'll, I'll be honest. We've had some employees that have had family members pass away. Yeah, we've had employees with COVID. Um, we've had uh, plenty of friends and, and what have you that have had it. And, you know, it's affected different people differently, right? If you have a pre-existing condition, you're much more at risk. If you don't, a lot of people are generally getting through it, right? But I'm sure everyone here has had some sort of personal experience with it at this point. Uh, we've only had a couple employees that don't feel comfortable coming back to the office and, and that's fine, right? So what, yeah. the primary adjustment we've had to make, mm-hmm. I think for me personally is, I've always been one of those believers that if you have a nice tight sort of office environment, you've got those quick sidebar conversations, well, what happened over here? What about this club? Um, you had to get away from that, right? You have to get used to this different form of communication and, and you can't approach business any differently than you did before, right? And you've had, in fact, you have to be that much more supportive of your employees and the choices that they need to make for their own well-being and their own balance. And you've got to keep them, uh, you know, feeling good in order to keep the business running productively. And I will say our team has just done an amazing job, uh, if not uh, as productive as they were before, more productive, right? And that's the funny thing with this when you're a traditional office guy like myself, office structure, let's say, because I'm always out in the field. Um, you know, maybe it's created a little bit more of a work-life balance for people, right? And then maybe that's uh, that's helping people, you know, put more into the time that they're at work. I've always been a strong believer in, uh, you know, family first, take time for that first. And if you have a balanced life, we talked about that before. If you have a balanced lifestyle, you're just going to do better overall. So, so maybe in the long run, the change is, is healthy. What's been the biggest lesson you've come, uh, come out of this experience so far? Well, look, I've, um, 
I don't really want this to come out wrong because I, and it shouldn't, but I think, uh, the importance of, uh, you know, empathy and understanding and, uh, listening more, uh, to, to everybody a little more deeply, a little more intently, right? Not that that wasn't there in the workplace before, but, um, I think everything that's happens honestly made every, everything about business a little bit more human, right? Cause we're all in the same boat. We're all dealing with the same things. And, um, I think that only brings a team closer together if you do it properly. And, and luckily, you know, up and down the chain here, I think everyone's pretty happy and feeling good about what we're doing. And we know we're going to come out the other end. You just got to stick through it. Yeah. It's going to be that ebb and flow, give and take a little bit. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, in the, in the physical training industry or the health industry, the exercise, you got to listen to your body. And that's a little bit like listening more to our employees and to the whole system. So, yeah, hey, Ben, listen, I, listen a little more as you get older. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I know that after my walk from the other day. Hey, listen, I want to turn it back over to the team and get right to some questions. But I want to thank you, Ben, very much for all you're doing and helping to get people back to work because that's the name of the game right now. So I'm turning it over to Greg and Tricia. C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much, Jeff and Ben. Uh, great conversation today. Uh, I love what you raised about the mental health space for all of us. And as executives, business leaders, influencers, that's a constant balancing act. And just, just building off of the last piece that you were sharing about how people are looking at 2021 and your team, how you've adjusted your learnings and so on. I'm curious how, how you're looking at that, how you're uh, sharing that perspective in terms of keeping people healthy, that mission, et cetera, through the whole crunch, you know, not only the franchise organization, but obviously all the people that are part of the membership. Well, I mean, you've, you've got to communicate with your members as much as possible, right? I mean, the key thing for us is we're, we're a customer service organization, right? So if the members aren't happy and the members aren't coming in and, and staying members and new members aren't joining them, we're, we're out of business, right? So everything that we do has to revolve around making people feel comfortable in the facility. Now, um, you've heard a lot about there's a trend towards digital exercise and then folks that are working out at home. And, and that's for sure. There's a lot more people doing that. And I understand why. Um, but we, we have no worries about the industry ever going anywhere, right? There are 60 million members of health clubs before this started. There's about a million people that have a subscription to, uh, you know, online for Peloton or something like that. So it's going to be a long time before the, uh, the fitness space goes away. So uh, people crave that sense of community, right? So you've got to create the environment where you can come in, you can do it safely. You can have that personal interaction with other people uh, in a space and do it safely. And you leave feeling good, right? Those positive endorphins that you get from exercise, the improvement, in your stress levels, the, the way it helps you just change your perspective on everything going around you after you've had a good workout is, is really important. So we try to put that out in front, right? We try to be super responsive to members. I mean, a lot of companies, uh, customer service levels have dropped dramatically, right? If you ever tried to get a refund from a plane, when plane company, when this started happening, they didn't even pick up the phone. They're just like, you know, Hey, we'll get, we'll get you a refund sooner or later. And, um, so you've got to put a real premium on that. We've, we've pushed up front in our company, our uh, NPS surveys. Uh, we, we, uh, survey as many members as we can to make sure we're, we're, you know, we're getting perceived well for what we're doing. And if we're not, we're following up with every single, you know, negative comment from the members, which uh, a lot of times, I'll be honest, the franchisees, though, they 
completely value the feedback from the members. It's a lot for them to do right now, right? It's just a lot for them to do, but they respect it and they get out and they, they take care of it. And once you get that feedback, it just improves what you're doing. And uh, so far it's been a good cycle for us, right? So that's, that's what we're trying to do. Well, Ben, thank you for answering Mark Bounty's question. I don't have to ask it. You, you talked about the rise in virtual working out and Peloton, et cetera. Connie Glover has a question. She wants to know your reaction to how governments determine what was deemed essential businesses that could stay open during COVID. She actually was a fitness studio owner and she was pretty annoyed at some of those rulings. Yeah. Um, so she was looking at the coffee shop, for example, just to paraphrase her question. He says, why is the coffee shop essential? Whereas her fitness studio wasn't deemed essential. What's your reply? Well, look, a little tongue in cheek. I can't, I can't answer anything on that. Right. I mean, look at government in general right now. So that's, that's a whole different subject, but in terms of how someone was deemed essential or not essential, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, we, we found out that strip clubs in San Diego were deemed essential when we had to shut down. Right. And, and in the beginning of this, I was one of those, uh, you know, hyperactive guys. I measured the, the distance in the, the, the aisles in the grocery stores. Right. They're only seven feet apart. And then the Walmarts and how many sanitation stations there were. Right. Because we have hundreds of clubs that are being unfairly treated in my mind, similar to any other business. God, I feel terribly for the restaurant owners out there and stuff, too, in the bars. But um, there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. I think for us, it was just some some visceral reaction to you breathe harder. Therefore, you're you're a problem. Right, your problem. So we got to shut it down. And uh, then you just start the whole process of, uh, you know, working through the government. And it's not just federal government, right? It's state, it's local, it's town. Um, and it's different every single place you go. So you've just got to fight all those little battles. It's like nothing anyone's ever dealt with before. So certainly no rhyme or reason. I hope something's learned from this, you know, if this ever happens again. I mean, I saw a great interview on the Wall Street Journal with professors from uh, Oxford, uh, Stanford, and Harvard saying that they thought the lockdowns were a terrible idea. They weren't effective. You know what I mean? So the economic damage and everything that's been caused, it's going it's to take a while to get over it, but hopefully there's lessons learned. I have just a quick follow-up, and it's along these lines of, of right now, it seems as though there's a backlash almost to, to franchises and chains thinking it's a part of big business. So people are sort of forgetting that most franchises are, are basically small business people buying up a few Kentucky Fried Chickens or small business people buying a few Dunkin' Donuts, but, but there's a feeling that it's a part of a big corporation and they're the enemy. Do you get that? Do you, do you, do you kind of feel that as well as that uh, chains are the enemy? And there's a lack of understanding that, look, we may have McDonald's, but a lot of these McDonald's are independently owned. Yeah, I, I mean, Catherine was talking about that quite a bit, right? And then uh, we've obviously watched all the NLRB, uh, you know, back and forth and the rulings and then the, to the changing from Democrats problem and so, so on and so forth. So, I mean, look, I, if, if you're from the outside, I, I, I think it's hard for the average person to distinguish a franchise from an independent business, right? Uh, just because there's so many of them, you see them all the time. So do I understand that perspective? Yes. Do a lot of people take the time to go behind the scenes? And the franchise or doesn't set your pay levels. We don't do your hiring. We don't do your firing. No. Right. So it becomes an easy talking point, uh, especially politically, that you're just sort of a big, bad corporation. Right. And uh, but, you know, Catherine spoke really 
eloquently on it. Uh, you can't absorb all those expenses. That's why franchisors have liability clauses in their agreements as well, right? Everyone who sues a local location is going to sue the franchisor. So you have to have indemnity in those agreements. And that's a that's a tough conversation just to have for your franchisee. But if you're a really large company, you can't defend a thousand lawsuits at the same time, right? So I understand it. I don't agree with it. But I do think part of that comes down to the people on the other uh, the other side, you know, being very sort of down to earth, common sense in your explanations of why that's not true, right? When people get like this, they don't listen, right? So you guys got to find the right way to communicate. And I think we could probably do it a little more effectively. Um, and hopefully we will be able to going forward. Uh, ben, uh, we have some great Lone Star representation in the house today uh, of C-Suite Network. And Lynn O'Neill is one of our executive leaders and, and part of the Lone Star Council. She's absolutely phenomenal. She had a question about your expertise in the franchise space as you, as you look at the whole industry. I mean, you spearheaded the fastest growth. Where do you see opportunity for franchising that maybe we don't have yet or for the greatest growth as we go forward, um, you know, through the next decade? From an industry standpoint, I'm guessing is it that, you know, that's, that's a tricky question, right? Um, I'm not, I'm not much of a futurist from that standpoint, but what I do know from this, you know, from franchising is if your model works, right. And you have an economically sustainable business plan and uh, you don't overcomplicate it, uh, then it's going to be successful. I also know that if you are a franchise company and you can't sell franchises, you can't sell your concept, you're never going to get out of the mud. You know, so for those 7,000 plus franchises that Jeff mentioned were out there, there's, there's thousands that never get out of the mud, right? Because they can't get people attached to their concept, right? So you've got to really sell properly and build those relationships that we talked about as well. So um, I'm sorry, I have kind of a bummer answer on that one. I can't tell you what's what's coming next, but I can tell you if you can package it right and then get people to believe in you and establish your relationships properly, you've got a really good chance of being successful. So not many leaders have your experience in terms of being at another very large brand and then walking out and selling from the beginning. And Catherine Munson, the, the president of the International Franchising Association, says you need to think about 100 franchise properties in order to have a self-sustaining royalty model. What is your advice in terms of, OK, now let's say I do have a great business model I want to franchise. How do I get to that critical mass as quickly as possible? Yeah. Well, look, I've been, I've grown up as, in sales, right? Wrote a book on it. You know what I mean? I won't make a, a, sales, a, a personal pitch for the book, but it comes down to selling, right? Mm -hmm. If you can sell it, then you can get that momentum going, especially in franchising, because what Catherine's talking about is once you sell it, then you've got to wait for the person to find a site. They've got to wait for it to be built out. Then you've got to wait for it to operate before you get your royalties. So everyone knows who's on the phone that's in franchising. You've got this long development cycle between selling. So if you only have three or four franchises or even 20 or 30, it's forever before you make money. It's forever. You've got to get these things rolling and moving and grooving. And at the same time you're selling, you've got to have everything documented and all your systems and all the work done to show them how to do it because any question you could think that a franchisee may come up with they're going to come up with it right and then if it's not written you can't support it and then back it up and then just forget about brand standards right at the beginning right if you want to have brand standards that's a whole other thing you've got to really police and have systems around and make sure your brand is sustainable and um you know is, is received well on a day-to-day -day basis but um 
don't get caught up in, you know, too much GNA expense in the beginning. I'd say too many people, if they're just getting going, they spend too much money creating an FDD or hiring a consultant or doing this and that. It doesn't have to be that expensive. You know, you can get your concept all written up for, you know, I'd say less than 50 grand legal fees and everything like that. you got to have audited financial statements. And then it comes down to selling. Right. You got to get out and sell and then you've got to provide all the support that the franchisees need. So I would spend much more time planning to launch. Right. Then you expect to and then go out and launch properly and also think about the amount of capital you're willing to risk. You might need some equity partners or just a few partners and and, uh, you know, to go out and do it. So you all uh, garner less risk because, you know, you might not succeed, but you're never going to know unless you try. So knowing what you know, Ben, would you do it again? Uh, I would. Would I do certain things differently? Sure. Right. I mean, I think that's the benefit. What would be the top two do differently? <laughs> <laughs> what would be the top two do differently? Um, I'll, I'll be honest. One of the things that's tricky when you're a scrappy new franchise is how tight do you hold the reins on everybody has to do things exactly a certain way, right? Uh, we started off charging lower royalties, right? Because we were trying to break into a market where our main competitor already had 500 locations, right? And like I said, we're coming out of bankruptcy and we have nothing to show you for an open club. We can't bring you there. So we, we lowered our royalties a bit and then we built on that trust. But I would have held stronger to the brand standards from day one, right? All that you don't want to be the, the heavy compliance gorilla, but you want to make sure that when the customer walks in, they feel good there. Your branding's right, your cleanliness rights, so everyone's wearing the right uniform, right? The signage is proper. So those types of things you have to be really, really tight on. Uh, we were we were we were we enforced it, but we weren't as tight as we should have been. And then secondly, so, so many things I'm going through my mind. I'm trying to narrow it down to just two. Secondly, I think it's just a matter of, uh, you know, documenting more things quicker. I mean, we probably right now have more manuals than any franchise I can think of. I mean, just your, just your pre-sale manual. I talked about that club that sold 2,300 memberships in one day, just the manual to tell you how to set up your pre-sale is 65 pages long. Right. And you have to do that by gathering all the best practices and all the things that people have done well and put it in there. So I, I would spend even more time documenting everything that we need to be able to explain to franchisees. Well, have you ever had a franchisee revolt? So, for example, for a while, I know we were seeing it. Burger Kings, you had franchisees saying, I can't charge two dollars for a Whopper. And you keep putting it out on national advertising and you'd have all the Burger King people revolt over the Whopper, or maybe it was the Big Mac, but I don't know. So how do you put down a, a, a franchise re revolt at Crunch? You guys, I'm sure you have some big folks to, to, to put it down, right? They were working sure. out. We do. We're not, we're not at the point where we've ever had a revolt, but any franchise has very strongly opinionated franchisees, right? And I guess... Look, we've had people talk about creating a franchise association, and, and I would expect one would, would come in the next year or two, right? Uh, we have our advisory committee, um, and uh, we, you know, we communicate with them fairly regularly, and sometimes we disagree. Uh, and I I'd say, honestly, in the beginning, we were probably a little nervous about a franchise association. Oh, no, a franchise association. But now, um, I honestly welcome it. And I mean that sincerely, because if you're a franchisor and you're afraid of you know, the opinions and then the disagreements from your franchisees, then what are you doing? You know what I mean? These are the guys and girls on the ground or, 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 or um, you know, that are they're doing the work. They're having the conversations with the members. They're your lifeblood. You're also their backbone. 
right? So you've got to work together. Now the franchisor is in charge of the brand, right? But, uh, you know, Catherine mentioned some of the points about McDonald's and, and so on and so forth, but same thing here. A lot of our best ideas have come for the franchisees. So you've got to run that balance, right? Where you explain to them properly, uh, look, you know, we could not charge you royalties, right? Every franchisee says, don't charge royalties or whatever it is, but then we're going to go out of business. And if we go out of business, then what's going to happen to you, right? You can't sell a company without a strong brand behind you. So you go through, that's just a hypothetical, but you go through those examples and then you understand it's a symbiotic relationship, right? And if you do it right and you take the extra time and sometimes go through the painful conversations, both for the franchisee and, and you, to make sure everybody has talked it all the way out, right? No one's tried to shut off the conversation and end it. And if you got to pick it up another time, that's fine. Then going through all of that, you get a nice rhythm with people. You can disagree sometimes vehemently, but it's always going to come out the other end on the right side because you're dependent on each other. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on C-Suite radio.com This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>